Well, good morning, Living Water. It is uh, good to spend uh, some time with you. We are uh, excited this morning. This is the the first time that we've actually had some people uh, in our worship room. Uh, Rather than preaching to uh, a couple cameras in the back, there's actually about 25 people who are members of our staff and elder board and their families that are here with us. It was great hearing uh, songs uh, resonate uh, through uh, the building. I want to take a, a moment to pray, and uh, then we'll dive into uh, this next portion of our study in Christ-likeness and crisis. Lord God, thank you for this morning. Uh, thank you for the opportunity that we have to, to worship uh, with you. Thank you that, uh, Lord, we're able to, to start bringing uh, folks into the, the church building, and we look forward to uh, reopening next week, Heavenly Father, with live services. We pray that you would Help us with the plans for the outdoor services on Saturday evenings and for the indoor services on Sunday mornings. And, uh, and Lord, also, I just want to take a, a special moment here. Uh, Lord God, as, as you know, and others don't, uh, we had Emily Rao and her mom and dad here uh, in the service with us this morning, and uh, her phone went off uh, just a few minutes ago, and uh, it was the Virginia National Guard uh, activating her uh, to go and to uh, help protect some cities in Virginia. And so, Lord, we pray for Emily. She's a member of our staff. Uh, Lord, she is a, a young lady, probably, I don't know, Lord, 20, 21 years old. And, uh, Lord, she's going to be put into uh, some very dangerous situations right now. We pray that you would surround her and uh, protect her. Uh, God, we pray, uh, Lord, that the demonstrations would be peaceful and uh, Heavenly Father, that, Lord, that you would ultimately be uh, glorified. Be with uh, Jim and Di as they obviously uh, lift up their daughter in prayer. And, uh, Lord, would you be glorified in the midst of this message. And it's through your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, <clears throat> yesterday uh, was one of those days, uh, like July 16th, 1969, and April 12th, 1981, that I will remember Uh, where I was and what I was doing and who I was with for the rest of my life. And what made yesterday so incredibly special along with those other two days? Well, uh, those days and yesterday were milestones in the United States manned spaceflight uh, missions. Uh, You see, I'm as a young boy, I I grew up uh, with NASA. I was uh, four years old on July 16th. 1969, I was in my, my grandma and grandpa Leonzo's uh, living room, uh, sitting on a, a little white stool, watching a, a black and white image of uh, the Apollo 11 spacecraft lift off on my, my grandparents' uh, Philco television screen. On April 12, 1981, uh, a bunch of my friends from the Central Dolphin High School Planetarium Assistance Club, yes, I'm a geek, I know that. Uh, we uh, had skipped school that day to go to a friend's house on Goose Valley Road and to uh, actually watch uh, the launch of the first uh, space shuttle. And then uh, yesterday, I was in our family room with my wife, Kathy, who I had to uh, pretty much cajole in order to join me in uh, watching the launch, along with a, a young lady named Heidi, who's part of our adult ministries group who had stopped by to drop off some cookies at our house. Uh, If you want to find your way to heaven, the best way to do it is drop off cookies at the pastor's house. Uh, But we talked uh, Heidi into joining us and watching uh, the launch of SpaceX's Crew Dragon, which was the first uh, commercial uh, private launch of 
uh, human beings into space. And uh, those three missions, uh, the Apollo 11 mission and the first mission of the space shuttle, and now uh, Dragon, which is uh, probably pretty close to docking to the space station right now, uh, have been extremely successful. But you know, it always hasn't been that way. On January 27, 1967, things weren't to happen the way that they actually happened. No one was supposed to die. After all, it was only a test, one of several that had been conducted over the last several months, and sure, there had been glitches along the way, but nothing had gone terribly wrong until that fateful day. You see, somewhere in the midst of the thousands of electrical connections that were there in that Apollo 1 spacecraft, there was a spark which would be harmless in most environments, but the Apollo 1 spacecraft was not most environments. You see, the atmosphere in the spacecraft was 100% oxygen, and that single spark initiated a 14-second inferno that consumed the lives of three American astronauts, Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chafee. And since that tragic day, much has been done to memorialize those particular men. Presidents have called them heroes, statues and plaques have been erected in their honor. Even the blockbuster movie Apollo 13 starts out with a reenactment of the Apollo 1 tragedy. But what many people don't know about that particular tragedy is what the rescue team found on that fateful day when they finally managed to open the hatch and gain access to the astronauts. You see, as the smoke cleared and, and the room-sized Apollo command module, launch pad leader Donald Babbitt peered inside at the charred remains of the capsule, and he couldn't believe his eyes when he saw the bodies of Grissom, White, and Chaffee, rather than being extensively burned, they were completely intact. You see, although the fire was extremely hot, it was also extremely fast. And as a result, the astronauts died not of the flames, but rather of the poisoned gases that were produced by those frames. Flames. Yet what, what's even more remarkable than the fact that the bodies themselves had not been consumed by the flames was what the astronauts were doing in those last seconds of their lives. You see, directly in front of Babbitt would, would, was the, the, the seat of Ed White, and Ed White is lying on his back with his arms over his head, reaching towards where the hatch was. From the left, Gus Grissom was visible, turned slightly towards the direction of White, reaching through the junior crewman's arms, uh, trying to, to reach that same absent hatch. And to the right, Babbitt saw Roger Chaffee still strapped into his seats, waiting patiently for his fellow crew members to do their work. You see, even as the, the flames of death encircled these men, these three brave men faithfully followed the emergency procedures to the letter. 
Ed White remained strapped to his seat as he struggled to open the hatch immediately above his head. Gus Grissom had removed his restraints just as he was supposed to in order to help White with a hatch. And Roger Chaffee continued to work the radio, still strapped into his seats, which quickly became his coffin, doing exactly what they had trained to do. And have you ever wondered what makes people that obedient? What makes three men who are trapped in an inferno execute the emergency procedures to the T? And even more than that, what makes three guys put themselves on top of what is, in essence, a 30-story bomb? Let me answer the first question, or the second question first. What made these men risk their lives in the first place? The answer to that is very, very simple. You see, the reason why, why White and Chaffee and Grissom would allow themselves to be strapped on top of a 30-story bomb was that they believed in the American space program so much that they were willing to do whatever was necessary in order to advance it. And let's face it, no one is willing to risk their lives or their reputations, or whatever else is important to them, unless they absolutely believe in what they're doing. And that, my friends, is called conviction. And the answer to the, the first question, what, what made them follow those procedures, those rules, even in the midst of a raging fire, flows directly from the first answer. You see, when, when you and I completely believe in that which we are doing with all of our heart, soul, and mind, when we are sold out, when we have deeply held convictions about something, then and only then are we willing to follow the rules, go with the procedure, regardless of the circumstances. And those two concepts, conviction tied to obedience, align directly with the sixth and seventh fruit of the Spirit, goodness and faithfulness. Let's look again at Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 uh, to 23. If you are able to stand in honor of God's word, I would ask that you would do that. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Thank you. You may be seated. This is the word of God. Now we are going to look at goodness and faithfulness together because they are so incredibly interrelated. Goodness is the, the deliberate preference of that which is morally good over that which is morally bad, or that which is morally right over that which is morally wrong. It is the firm and persistent resistance of that which is evil and the embracing of that which is good. It is being absolutely convinced that what God has to offer is so much greater than what the Lord or the world has to offer. Faithfulness is dependability. It's follow-through. It's responsibility that, that, that is consistent 
all the time in doing that which is good. And as such, a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ is someone who you can depend on to always choose that which pleases God and always reject that which doesn't please God. So for the sake of, of today's message, I'm, going to, I'm just going to use the term faithfulness rather than trying to deal with these just very tight nuances between goodness and faithfulness. And the Bible is filled with all kinds of people who have demonstrated that they are faithful. People like Noah and Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and and Mary and Peter, even a prostitute by the name of Rahab. And while we could look at any one of those people this morning, instead I I want to, to look at the life of a man by the name of Daniel. Now Daniel was a, a young Hebrew boy who was taken from his homeland and his family most probably by sword point, when the Babylonians conquered the nation of Israel some 600 years before the birth of Jesus. He and and many other uh, bright young Hebrew boys were taken eastward to the, the country of Babylon, which we know today is modern Iraq. And there he and his friends they were placed in what would basically be considered a a, a finishing school. And and for three years, they were taught the the language of the Babylonians. Uh, They were given the finest clothes, the choicest food. Yet in the midst of all of this opulence, Daniel and his friends, they don't abandon their faith in the one and only God of the Hebrews They they don't abandon that God and and embrace the paganism of the Babylonians. They they stay faithful to God. And eventually, through a a series of miraculous events, uh, which we don't really have the time to go into this morning, Daniel proves himself to be trustworthy and and ultimately is appointed to, to be one of three government officials who oversee the entirety of Babylon. And that's where our story picks up, Daniel chapter 3, or 6, I'm sorry, verses 1 through 3. It says, it pleased Darius, this is the king, to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished among all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom of Babylon. Now the first thing that we learn from this passage is that faithfulness gets noticed. Take a look again at verse 3. It says, This Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Wouldn't we like our actions to be noticed like Daniel's were? 
Wouldn't we like someone to, to notice or think highly of our capabilities so much that, that they place us in a position of authority, to think so highly of our integrity that they push us in a position of authority, uh, whether it be in our workplace, our community, or our church? Everybody wants that. Everybody wants to be promoted. Everybody wants to be recognized. Everybody wants to be respected. The problem is few people are willing to work that hard and to be that committed to integrity in order for that to happen. Because when we work hard and when we have integrity, that is when we get noticed. Uh, John Maxwell, uh, leadership guru, uh, calls this the law of process. Basically, he says, being given authority, gaining respect, obtaining success almost never occurs overnight. Instead, it is a day-by-day process over the long haul. But not everyone appreciates faithfulness, especially the unfaithful. Because when you get right down to it, faithfulness makes the unfaithful be uncomfortable. Let me show you in the next couple verses, verses 4 through 9. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground of, for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. These men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king Darius, live forever. And the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors, the governors, all agreed, or are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions." Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. You see, while the king is planning on promoting Daniel, Daniel's co-workers are planning on destroying him. But they have a major problem. They can't come up with any reason why Daniel shouldn't be promoted. They try and try again, but in the end, they can find no corruption in him whatsoever. They can't find any negligence. The only thing that they can find is that that he is trustworthy to his Father in heaven. And it's pretty tough to make a case that someone should be demoted because what? That they're actually trustworthy. It's just as the words... And are recorded in First Peter say this, for the, this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of fooling people. Yet in their ignorance, Daniel's enemies, they're hatching a plan. They say to themselves, why in the world is Daniel trustworthy? And the obvious answer that they come up with is, is because of his faith in God. You know, isn't that a surprise? I mean, Daniel is, is, is uh, faithful. Why? Because he's got faith. 
And the reason why Daniel is trustworthy was because he answered to someone higher than the king. He answered to God himself, the one who sees all that we do, the one who knows all that we think, uh, the one who in 2 Chronicles says this, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. You see, Daniel's faithfulness, it was driven by his faith. So it's not surprising that his enemies set a trap for him that was designed to put his faith to the test. In Daniel's enemies' minds, they had set the perfect trap because they had put him in a lose-lose situation. If Daniel was to obey the king's law, he would have to be unfaithful to his God. And he loses. But if he's faithful to God, then he will have violated the king's law, and as a result, he'll be executed by being fed to lions, and he loses again. You see, from Daniel's enemy's perspective, either way he loses, but they failed to recognize something, and that's the definition of faith. In Hebrews 11, we read this. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. You see, faith has nothing to do with our present circumstances. Faith is always future-based and heaven-focused. The faith that the Bible talks about has nothing to do with some kind of impotent religion. For religion will never get you through the tough times that we are currently experiencing. The faith that the Bible talks about has everything to do with a personal relationship with God in heaven. If Daniel's faith was based on some hollow religious ritual, if his faith foundation was built on watching some kind of weekly 60-minute live stream, if his faith ebbed and flowed with his emotions, then he would have been a world of, in a world of trouble because some weekly 60 minutes of watching a virtual worship service in your pajamas with unbrushed teeth isn't going to cut it when your enemies are after you. See, Daniel didn't merely have a religious knowledge of God. He had a personal relationship with God. And as a result, Daniel understood that faithfulness is always faith acting in the midst of obedience. And so when confronted with a lose-lose situation, he did the only thing that he knew how to do. Look at verses 10 and 11. When Daniel knew the document had been signed... He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber towards Jerusalem, open towards Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. You see, faithfulness finds its faith in prayer and in worship. Its strength is found when we're on our knees. If you've ever wondered where the faithful find their strength, wonder no more. It's on their knees. When Daniel hears what's going down, he goes home, and rather than trying to come up with some plan that would please both God and king, 
which tragically many of us try to do, he instead does something incredibly bold. He goes upstairs to a room whose windows open towards the city of Jerusalem, and he begins to pray, just like he always did. The windows are open. He's praying out loud so everybody can hear. And he does this not just once, but he does it three times a day. And not just for one day, he does it repeatedly, just like he had done before. You see, for those who are faithful, the the whim of a king or a mayor or a governor or a congress or a president doesn't change anything at all. What is right in God's sight is still right. And what is wrong in God's sight is still wrong, regardless of what the law says. And the same holds true for you and I. If one day uh, the United States of America uh, would change and they would say that, that stealing is no longer illegal, would stealing be right? No. You see, things are, are not right or wrong based on civil law. Things are not right or wrong based on what our teacher or our parents teach us. Things are not right or wrong based on what we think should be right or wrong. Things are right and wrong based on whether or not they align with the character of God. Let's try a little exercise here. Uh, you at home, you can try to exercise, uh, answer this, these questions at home. I'm not going to force all these folks here to try to come up with the answers, but let's just do this little exercise together. Why is lying wrong? People would say lying is wrong uh, because the, the Bible says that lying is wrong. Well, why in the world does the Bible say that lying is wrong? And then people sit there with a stupid look on their face. They're like, I'm not sure why the Bible says that lying is wrong. Well, I'll tell you why lying is wrong. Because God is truth. And anything that happens outside of the attributes of God is wrong. You see, lying is wrong is because it goes against the character of God. Why is adultery wrong? Why did God declare that adultery is wrong? So you're supposed to be nice to your spouse? No. The reason why adultery is wrong is because God is faithful. Why is injustice wrong? Why are we revolted when we see these horrible images of of young men getting, getting shot or their necks getting crushed? by people who are in positions of authority or who have some level of power. Why is injustice wrong? Because the United States Constitution says injustice is wrong? No, because God is just. That is why injustice is wrong. Why is hatred wrong? Because God is love. Why is the taking of innocent life wrong? Because God is life. Why is revenge wrong? Because God is mercy. Why is rioting wrong? Because God is order. Why is stealing wrong? It's because God is the provider. And if you ever want to know what is right and wrong, all you have to do is look at the character of God. You see, the king's law was wrong because God and God alone 
is worthy of worship. And so Daniel, he understood he needed to do something about it. And of all the things Daniel could have done, he chose the absolute most powerful yet most risky thing. He could have gone uh, to the king and tried to change the king's mind. He could have probably figured out how to have his enemies executed. He could have fled the country. But instead, he falls on his knees to trust his Father in heaven. How about us? What do we do when we have to make a decision between the things of God and the things of this world? Do we try to figure it out on our own? Uh, Do we take off? Do we give up on God? Do we hide from those who are potentially threatening us? Or are we like Daniel? Do we fall on our knees and ask the Lord for help? Now, it's this point things get crazy interesting. Let me read to you the rest of the story. This is going to be a bunch of slides, folks, so it's good that I've got Patrick back there. He's well-skilled over these last three months. Then they came near and said before the king, this is Daniel's enemies, concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast out into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, This thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. And they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction that you have signed, but he makes his petition three times a day. And when the king heard these words, he was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that is the law of the Medes and the Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king established can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, May your God whom you serve Every other Sunday morning? No. Continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And then the king went to his palace. This is a pagan king, by the way. And spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And he came near to the den where Daniel was. He cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the den of lions? And then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless Before who? Before God. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken out of the den. So Daniel was taken out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel 
were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. You see, faithfulness at its pinnacle is unwavering trust. See, probably the most amazing part of this story is that from the time that that Daniel is accused until the time he is rescued, he doesn't say a blessed thing. There's no talking at all. He doesn't argue for his rights. He doesn't say that I've been set up. He doesn't go before Judge Judy when Stephen Colbert or Sean Hannity or Oprah call for an interview. He turns them all down. Why? Because he has only one thing in mind. The only thing that's going to save him is his God, and that's who he's going to spend his time communicating with. Daniel understood a principle of the Christian faith. He understood that there are times when only The God of this universe can save us. In Psalm 20, we read this. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. They collapse and fall. But we rise up and stand upright. You see, Daniel's enemies trusted in laws and lions. But Daniel, he trusted in the power of the Lord. And that made all the difference in the world. In the end, God miraculously reaches his hand down from heaven, closes the mouths of the lions. Can you imagine what that must have looked like? Daniel snuggled between a couple of lions being lulled to sleep by their gentle purring. I mean, that makes the Lion King look way different, brothers. And all the while, the king, who didn't believe in Daniel's God, he lays awake all night long, wondering what he just did. And no doubt, while Daniel's in that sealed cave, his enemies are rejoicing at their perceived success. What a surprise it must have been for them when that stone was rolled away and Daniel cries out, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. You see, in the end, faithfulness always always, always stands the test of time. And manipulation and deceit and hypocrisy and every other evil under the sun is condemned to fail. And brothers and sisters, times like we are experiencing right now, they demand Biblical faithfulness. It is so easy when we are stressed and frustrated and afraid to turn our back on God 
and the things of God. We want instant relief from our anxiety and our pain and our fear. We all want some sense of normalcy, but we can't find it. And so we look for a way to medicate it through sinful actions. So we say to ourselves, I lost my job. I can't pay the bills. Maybe some alcohol will take the pain away. We say, I can't figure out my spouse and all this time together is completely stressing me out. Maybe venting my anger upon him or her will relieve some of the pressure. And sadly, I've done that over the last three months. We say, work is insane. I thought I'd get tons of things done because uh, I'm working from home now or or I'm at work and the phones aren't going to be ringing off the hook. But the opposite is true. Work is harder now than it ever has been. And we say, maybe I'll just reward all of that hard work with a little bit of pornography. Or we say this world is is spiraling out of control. People are getting murdered. And it's on video. And justice is not being served. 14-year-old kids are are being gunned down in our neighborhoods. Protesters are, are burning down their own neighborhoods. And I don't know what to do. I don't know who to believe. So I'm going to post my frustrations or I'm going to tweet my frustrations, and I'm going to lay it all out there. I don't care what my friends think. I don't care who it hurts. I don't care if it tarnishes the image of God, his people, or his church. Or we say to ourselves, I'm tired of the mask, and I don't want to wear it anymore. Nobody can tell me what to do. Or we go to the other extreme. I can't believe that those people aren't wearing any masks. Don't they care about other people? And regardless of what side we were on, we we look down our noses at the others, making all kinds of, of judgments about them. This person is reckless. That person is fearful. We don't see them as brothers and sisters. We see them as enemies. And I could go on and on and on. In the midst of all of this chaos, it's easy to reject goodness and abandon faithfulness. Because consistently choosing that which is morally good and faithfully embracing it through the long haul is hard. It demands that we die to self demands that we consider others better than ourselves. It demands that we embrace the truth of God's word even when the world is shouting otherwise. But know this one thing. You, you're not alone. There is one who has gone through something far worse than what we're going through. 
There is one who has been tempted in every way, but is without sin. His name is Jesus. And when the world was arrayed against him, when the fullness of evil was calling him to reject the things of God and embrace the, the things of the world, he remains faithful. And he too, like Daniel, was tossed into a pit. The stone was rolled across the mouth. And all the while his friends prayed, his enemies rejoiced. But three days later, when the stone was rolled away, like Daniel, he was alive. His father had delivered him from sin and death. And like the Bill and Gloria Gaither song from the late 1960s, when when things were spinning out of control very much, the way that things are spinning out of control right now. In the midst of all of that insanity, they declared this. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know that he holds the future. Life is worth the living just because he lives. Brothers and sisters, don't you dare waste this struggle. Turn to Jesus, the one who in John 14 says, because I live, so shall you live also. Pray that Jesus would give you the strength to persevere in the midst of this chaos that you and I, we might choose goodness and embrace faithfulness. And may the great God of the universe be glorified through you and me as we choose those two things, goodness and faithfulness. Will you pray with me? Precious Heavenly Father, we come before you uh, this morning, and Lord, in your divine providence, uh, Lord, you give us sermon topics that were planned weeks and weeks and weeks ago that tie in directly to what we're experiencing right now. And Lord God, we live in a culture that does not embrace that which is morally right and reject that which is morally wrong. We live in a culture that, that, Lord, just simply is not good. We live in a culture where two guys get in a car or truck, run down a, a young man who's running, jogging, have another guy behind them filming. And, Lord, an altercation occurs and young man is killed. Lord, we live in a culture where a man tries to pass off a, a bad $20 bill to a shop owner where the police are called 
where he's restrained in handcuffs and put on the ground, and then a knee is put upon his neck for eight minutes, and his life is snuffed out. Well, we live in a culture where a young black kid is playing in our neighborhood, Heavenly Father, 14 years old, and is gunned down. Father, we live in a culture that uh, people rightly protest the injustice that they see. Yet, Heavenly Father, somewhere along the way, evil raises its ugly head. And buildings are burnt down and property is destroyed. People who had worked for years to build restaurants and businesses, small businessmen, they, they, uh, Lord, who built into the community where these people live, their buildings are burned to the ground. We live, Heavenly Father, in a culture when Our good police chief, Chief Carter, a godly man, where we have to watch him on television stand in front of an angry mob behind him, Lord, police officers, and somehow, Lord, with great courage, talk down the chaos. Lord, we live in a culture where a 20-year-old young woman, 21-year-old young woman, Heavenly Father, who, who should be helping to, to figure out how to plan uh, our student ministries coming back to life, Heavenly Father, gets a phone call in the middle of a church service, is going to have to drive to Virginia right now, Heavenly Father, and Lord, serve as a military police officer in a city protecting it. God, this world is broken. I'm not telling you anything new. And Father, we need you. Lord, we are your church. We are your hands and feet on this earth. Father, you have called us to live differently. You have called us to be people who have been bought by the shed blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we, our, our, our battle plan is with the gospel. Lord, you have called us to be peacemakers. You have called us, Heavenly Father, to stand up for justice. Lord, you have called us to, 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 to point out where injustice occurs. And you have called us, Heavenly Father, for us to live lives of justice. Lord God, we are to treat our neighbors well, regardless of whether they like us or not. Father, would you help us? Lord, to have goodness live in our lives because it's only through the power of your spirit in us that that is possible. Lord, would you help us to be faithful people? God, we are grateful for your son. We are grateful for the gospel of hope and the God of peace and justice and faithfulness. Lord, we love you. And it's through your son's name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.